0: heaven can feel pretty unlikely sometimes can't it that's not the part of the sermon that you amen or that you go preach it brother but it's true isn't it heaven god this place where god's perfect rule and reign this idea that this idea of home this perfect space can feel pretty unlikely sometimes can't it can feel like a long way off can't it sometimes there's no amends, and I'm not surprised, but it's true. In the everyday, in the ordinary, this thing called heaven can just feel miles away, can't it? This brilliant show called QI. Have you ever seen QI? You do this thing, sometimes you say this, and half the audience look back at you and go, no idea what you're talking about, and half of them go, yes, I love this show, It's amazing. QI, it's a panel show, Stephen Fry is the host, If you heard of Stephen Fry, you've probably heard of Stephen Fry, he is the authority, he's such a clever guy, amazing intelligence and sort of the, the, the premise of the show is, well it's almost a, a format just to show us how smart he is and how stupid we all are and he asks these questions that are kind of impossible to answer but these guys either side of him make a fist of it and then Stephen Fry comes back with these awesome, really intelligent, really smart Answers, just incredible, just blows you away. And I watch it and I laugh along. And I kind of buy into this guy's authority. I'm watching, I'm thinking, yeah, this is awesome. And then I laugh heartily. I don't laugh heartily in general life, but put me at home on my own in front of the TV and I guffaw and I laugh heartily. And I completely embrace the world of QI and I'm laughing my head off, completely engaged. And I'm like, yeah, this guy's incredible. I'm blown away by the facts. And then he says something that just completely undermines my whole life. Just completely undermines my whole faith, everything I think to be true, with one comment. And because I've like followed him for 25 minutes and he's been the authority and he's the wise guy, and I'm laughing along and I'm buying into it, I'm just completely crushed. And there's that sense, and I'm trying to be provocative here, where heaven almost feels like it gets further away. It gets more likely. Have you ever had that? Have you ever had your faith just just like what it feels like? It's just getting squeezed. And I'm watching it through the eyes of my friends and my neighbors who are not Christians or whatever else. And they're seeing it and I'm thinking, oh man, this just makes heaven just get so much further away. Just the authority with which this man speaks about my faith. And heaven just gets further away. I get a bit of a sense of that when I walk through the doors at Xscape. I've got my sermon notes in my pocket. And I'm a bit nervous. My heart's beating a bit fast. And I'm, I'm aware of my message and I'm aware of God's message. And I'm aware that it's Christmas time. And I walk through here and I look around at just the massive construction, this mass of materialism. And how attractive it is. And how awesome everything looks as you walk through the doors of Escape, And how big it is. And I think, man, how is, ever, how is anyone going to see the Christ of Christmas in this? And it almost just makes heaven, God's hope, And those promises just feel further and further away. Do you ever get that? Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like it's a long way away? Atheism is a big noise right now, isn't it? Science has got the place of authority in our lives. Materialism looks awesome. It looks like lots of fun. And heaven can feel like a long way off. We preach that God has the authority but it doesn't always feel like that, does it? Sometimes heaven can feel a long way away. Do you know there's nothing new under the sun? This kind of feels like a 21st century problem, but it's not. There's there's, there's probably a, a way better example of this sort of thing going on within the text of the Bible. It's Isaiah chapter 40. God's people are in exile, and I'll bring you up to date with a story. I think you might have a little sense of it. God's people in exile, it's the time of Daniel, They are exiled there, and they are just so far away from the promises of God. So far away from the promises of God. And it's difficult for them. I guess they're in Babylon. It's about 900 miles west or east. I can't quite remember now with my geography. From Jerusalem, from where they're at home. They're miles away from home. Miles and miles away from home. Miles and miles away from the God that they've grown up with. And their story... Is one of redemption. They look back through the annals of time. They, they listen to the voices of their grandparents. And their grandparents tell them that we were a people that were slaves in Egypt. And God had a plan for us. And that plan was to save us and to redeem us and to bring us out of slavery. And live long in the promised land. That was the plan for us. But now we are abandoned. We are forgotten. We are in exile in Babylon this people would have looked out to the horizon, looked out to where they thought Jerusalem might have been, and I I think it's west of where they would have been in Babylon, looked out to the west, 900 miles across the desert of sin, and thought, that's just so far away from us. There's no way we can get back there. In Babylon, they would have looked around at the might and the authority and the clout of the Babylonians. They would have got comfortable. They would have enjoyed their lives there to some respect. It was what they were familiar with. And back Home in Jerusalem just looked miles away. And in some sense, this concept of our heaven being miles away and their hope of Jerusalem, their sense of the promised land, just would have felt miles away. And yet, God's message for this people was to start thinking about returning home. Think about it. Completely abandoned, Babylonian authority captive there, and yet God turns around and says, I want you to start thinking about returning home. Here's the passage. It's verse 3 to 5. I think that's up on the screen. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare a way. And these, these verses will be familiar to you. You'll be like, I've heard these before. Where have I heard these verses before from? A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill shall be Made low, the rough ground shall become level and the rugged places plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. What is this a picture of? It's an awesome picture. It's a picture that would have been hard to grasp if you're an exiled Hebrew person looking over the looking over the horizon to Jerusalem. God's word comes to him and says, I'm gonna build a superhighway from here to there. Now you've heard these verses before. What do they mean? God saying to these people, in this immediate sense, going to clear the mountains out of the way. Here's the picture, going to make it incredibly easy for you to get back to the promised land. And it's an incredible challenge for these people, these people who are just lost and abandoned and doubtful. He's saying to them, I want you to start, go over to the horizon, get your binoculars out or whatever else it is, look back at Jerusalem like it's a present reality, like it's a real possibility, and not because of you and your faithlessness, but because I am a great God. I am going to do something amazing. And the questions that stir through the people's minds, this doubting people, this people that see God and his promises miles away are starting to be, how do we get all God's people over there? How can we clear a path so that people will begin to see God? He's asking the people to look out onto the horizon and think about how they're going to get home. I think it's a great challenge for us to think about I think human nature has us living so much in the now that to think about what it means to inherit God's promises just seems so far away. God would challenge us right now to be a people that don't live in the now, that aren't completely consumed and absorbed by what is now, which is just about impossible to do because escape is so awesome, materialism is so cool. Stephen Fry speaks with so much authority, but what he would say to us is just for us to start to think and to plan like we are heading to a promised land, like we are heading to heaven. He asks us to look to the future with hope. And I guess in some senses what is described in these verses, and you'll know these verses, it's the job of a forerunner. And you'll have heard about the job of a forerunner, perhaps. We covered it when we looked at Luke, Luke chapter 3. It's someone who goes ahead, to clear the road, to make sure that the king can get through. This used to be an actual job in ancient times. This was an actual job that somebody would do. Somebody would go out and clear the road. You'd you'd hear about the king visiting. You'd hear the story, or the king's coming. The king's coming to town. You'd maybe see him on the horizon. It would be somebody's actual job to go go out of his way and make sure that he could get through. You didn't want the story that the king's on the horizon. Oh, man, the king's on the horizon. He wants to come to town. And he can't get here because the roads are no good. So he goes back or he goes to the next town. It's embarrassing for your place. So you want the king to get there. So you send people out to fix the roads, to actually mend the roads. So I guess the, the, the language is, is very grand in this prophecy. It's, it's that mountains will be crushed and valleys will be raised up. But this, some people actually went out weeks in advance, like forerunners, way ahead of time, to make sure that the king could get through. So there's a literal sense of this prophecy we're familiar with these words, aren't we, in another sense? We're familiar with a character called John the Baptist who took up this job, who went out and who claimed this prophecy. He said, this is about me. I'm clearing the pathways for a king that's coming. I'm going to do that. But John the Baptist, when he went out, didn't start smashing up any literal roads. He didn't start filling any actual valleys in. He went out and he saw the state of the people and he thought, man, there's no way There's no way the king can come here to Jerusalem. These people are not ready to meet him. He looked at the states of their hearts and minds. He saw the injustices in the world. He saw the problem of sin in the world. And he said, if if I can't clear this up, if if I can't begin to make some inroads, if I can't smash this up a bit, then nobody is ready to meet the king. Nobody is ready to see Jesus when he arrives. The repairs that we're thinking about for this highway, in order for us to see the promise of God are made in our hearts. It's our hearts that need to change and prepare. I think it provides a really good challenge for us, something for us to think about. If we're people who might want that someday they can be people who, who show people where God is or, or, or are people who are welcome God in their lives, that, that the real job of this is to make our hearts ready so that he can come in. So there's this awesome challenge that's gone out. God is going to make an amazing way for you to escape. God is going to do something unbelievable. God is going to get you out of Babylon. You will no longer be exiled there. But can you imagine uh, kind of the reality of that for some exiled Hebrew guy in Babylon? Can you imagine how far off that feels? How unlikely that feels? He He will have heard this. And he will have stared out at the horizon optimistically for about 15 minutes and thought, yeah, do you know what? I've heard the stories about God. God can move in this way. God can be amazing in this way. This could happen. And he was stared out at the horizon, and he would have turned back, and he would have gone back, and he would have seen the greatness of Babylon. He would have looked at his family all settled into their homes. He would have seen the big Babylonian soldiers walking around with the authority, and in two minutes or one minute, he would have realized, oh man, actually, this feels like a long time way off. We can get like that, can't we? We hear the odd sermon that completely blows us away, or even we watch the odd program about dieting or healthy living or something like that, and we're completely amazed, and we're like, yeah, I'm changing my whole life right now. I've seen this program about how to eat right. I am never going to be the same again. Oh, I've I've heard this sermon about how God should be in my life, and I'm never, ever going to change And I'm going to just completely transform. And yet, 15 minutes down the line, we flick the TV on, we watch something else, we see a chocolate bar in the fridge, and it all starts to fade away and go away. We are temporarily completely inspired, but it falls away so quickly, doesn't it? These exiled Jews in Babylon must have just looked at themselves and thought, but God has forgotten about us. Have you heard that, the the reggae song? by the rivers of Babylon, where we sat down. It's like the least likely. I'm getting some awesome nods from the back. That's really cool. Is that, have you heard the reggae song? By the, there's, there's people of a certain age who are like, I'm all over that song. I know the rivers of Babylon. The, I think reggae is the worst genre possible for that song because it is not, like listen to the words, it is not a joyful song. By the rivers of Babylon, where we sat down and we wept when we remembered Zion, where we cried our eyes out when we thought about how we'd messed it up. When we cried our eyes out, when we realized just how distant the prospect of our promised inheritance was, where we wept, it's 900 miles, it's way across the desert. And the other thing that's in the back of these people's minds is that they've been too bad. Their story was one of redemption. Their story was one of God saving them, them obeying the rules of the law and living long in the land. And they hadn't obeyed the rules of the law and they were exiled in Babylon and God had forgotten about them. Don't we have some parallelisms with this sort of thinking? When heaven feels like a long way off, don't you ever think, man, I'm just, God can't love me. I've messed up too many times. I'm too much of a screw-up. Heaven, for me, just feels too far away, right? I'm just too messed up. It's too messy. What does God need to show these people, these exiles in Babylon? What does he need to show them if they're going to get back to Jerusalem? if they're going to take him up on his promise, if they're going to cross this highway that he said he's going to build. Because these people are looking into the eyes of the Babylonians and thinking, nah, we're just going to stay here. It's probably better that we stay here. What would God have to do? Isaiah is sent by God, and Isaiah has to remind these people, and we have to be reminded too, of the greatness of God. God. God sees the people, these exiles in Babylon, and he says, you've forgotten about me. You've forgotten how incredible I am. You've forgotten just how awesome I am. Verse six, this is what you need to hear, God says. All people are like grass, and their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fail because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely, people are grass. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord endures forever. What is he saying? What is the message here? The grass. It doesn't really work in Yorkshire. I was thinking about this this afternoon. It's not, it's, not an, it's not a story that really translates over to Yorkshire because we have got such awesome weather, God's own country, that the grass just grows the whole time, just stays with us the whole time. But it's not the way it was in, in the ancient Near East or in the, didn't matter what time it was, in the Near East. You would get a hot wind that would come up from the desert and in no time at all, this grass that was lovely, that you would be familiar with, that you would think, oh, this is the grass. The grass would just disappear. The grass goes. He's saying, look, this is, this is the reality of what the authorities are like. You see, you see this picture of this grass that's going to stay there forever. No. The authority that you are seeing from these Babylonians is temporary. You need to remember that it's temporary. And it's God's word that endures forever. You need to get that picture back in your mind again. It's been a, and this might be because I'm getting old. Probably is because I'm getting older. It's been one of those years where I've started to notice, this sounds terrible, but give it a moment. I've started to notice people dying. <laughs> You know what I mean? And it's been one of those years where it's happened. It's happened a lot, hasn't it? Famous people, celebrities. And maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe it is. Maybe maybe this is, you've recognized this before. But for me, these people that are massive influencers, and I've listed a few of them, that are no longer with us. And you think about the sort of sphere of influence that they've had, the amount of people that would fall and follow these people. And, and maybe you'll think of your own, your own people from this year. Robin Williams, David Bowie, Victoria Wood, Muhammad Ali, there's bunches of people that you would just see and you would think, oh man, these people have massive influence. And yet, in a few generations' time, these great people, these hilarious people, these talented people, these people will be like footnotes in history. And it seems so unlikely. Like in the moment of of this year where we say, I will never forget you. These people will live long in the memory. And some of them will have a lasting legacy, but they'll all be forgotten you start to notice this as you get older when you say to somebody like I'm 37 now and I was talking to a young guy the other day and I was talking about Oasis an awesome band Oasis just massively influential to me and he said and this just this could almost kill you oh, my dad's my dad's into them and I was like what how has Oasis not shaped your world how has Oasis not influenced your thinking Vic and Bob, my comedy idols, Vic and Bob, Vic Reeves and Bob Mortimer. I mean, not many people have heard of these two guys, but they are massively influential to me. And what you realize is these people that build up masses of influence, it's just, it's fleeting. In the moment, I guess if you live in the country where Mugabe is in charge, or you live in a country where there's there's an evil dictator, it will feel like that is the pattern forever and ever. And God's word reminds us here that this... These people and these powers are fleeting. The people in America now will look at Donald Trump and think our lives will never, ever get back to anything that is sane and normal ever again, but they will. Donald Trump will be a footnote in history, but God's word will endure forever. The book of the Lord, the word of the Lord has been the most persecuted book, the most persecuted book that has ever existed. And it has been written off Time and time and time and time again. A couple of examples of its unlikely success. Roman Emperor Diocletian demanded that all the scriptural texts be burned. He said, I've had enough of these Christians. I am the God here. And he demanded that they would all be burned. And then 50 years later, Constantine, who took a slightly different view of Christianity, perhaps on on the back of one battle, said, no, we're going to reprint the Bible. And if you're living in the time of Diocletian, you're going to think, man, this is it. This is the end of Christianity. Fifty years later, he's forgotten. And the Bible lives on. Voltaire, he claimed when he lived that Christianity would be dead within the next hundred years. Nobody would have heard of Christianity. We have become enlightened. We are past all that now. And almost, I don't know if God is a God of irony, but it sounds quite ironic to me that the Geneva Bible Society used his house and his press to mass-produce Bibles. It's incredible, isn't it, that this book that is so massively persecuted endures. We have this book that is the answer. It won't go away. It is an eternal book. It describes the beginning of life, and it describes the end of life. And yet, even as I preach that, even as I say, yeah, this book is the center of my life, it's the most important thing, it's the word that endures, I get it, I am still crippled by Stephen Fry's words. There's still influences from my childhood that massively impact my life right now because we are so temporary situated. This passage would say to us, we need to get our heads above this. We need to see past this. God's word is what really matters. God's word is what endures forever. You need to remember what is said? How else does God show us his great? Verse 12. God who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the... Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord, or instruct the Lord as his counsellor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? Do you not know, verse 21? Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them all out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught, and he reduces the rulers of this world To nothing. It gives us just this great perspective of how God sees the world, which we so quickly forget. We see the world so clearly through our own eyes and our own immediate circumstances. And God says, No, you need to see the world like this. We have a much bigger sense of ourselves than is right. Have you ever flicked through old maps and seen maps of maps of Europe when when the British printed them? Britain's huge. It's like massive massively disproportionately big. Me and me and my little girl were building a planetarium. The other, do you know what a planetarium is? All the planets. And we started off with Earth, because we're from Earth, and that, that made a lot of sense. And we understood what Earth was like, and we drew out Earth, and it was about a coaster size. And we had a shoebox for the whole universe. And we quickly realized that Earth was way too big. But it kind of made sense that it should look like this, because we knew it was kind of green there and blue there, and we wanted that to be seen. That's important, right, in the scale of the universe. People need to see what it looks like. And, we, and then we made a few other planets and we got about as far as Saturn before we realized Earth's not going to cut it at this size. We have to make it smaller. And then we, got, we made another copy and then we made a megastar or something like that which was just ridiculously big. And we had to make Earth smaller again. And before we realized it, Earth was about the size of a pea. In fact, you couldn't even really make out the colors of Earth when you understood it in the scale of the universe. God says to us through his words, you need to get a sense you human beings, you think you're kind of eternal beings. You think you've got it all nailed down. You need to remember that I am the God who sits comfortably above the, above the earth, who flings stars into space. You need to get a sense of your place and your perspective in this world. There's also a bit of a, a diss at our wisdom, I guess. Like so often within human history, we have these moments where it looks like as a human race, we say, oh, we've got it. Like when we made the car, it was like human beings collectively went, look, we've got the car now. How awesome is the car we have arrived? And you kind of fold your hands and you say, "Yep, yeah, we can do anything now. We've got a car. We've made a dishwasher. Yep, yeah, we can do anything now. We've got a dishwasher and a hoover. Our lives are completely transformed. And we are arrogant enough to describe ourselves as enlightened. Read this and imagine God's perspective on the human race that eventually, having lived, I don't know, for a few thousand years and progressed, we get to a point where we now say to God, we are now enlightened. Have you got this, God? We have have figured it out. We have looked at the earth. We've had a good long look. We've made a few mistakes. And now we are quite confident to say we are an enlightened species. Have you ever stopped to think how kind of arrogant and misplaced that must look from God's eyes? It's like that little ant's nest at the end of your drive. Um, one of the ants gets a megaphone. I'm not quite sure how this works, but the, the ant gets a megaphone and he comes to you and he says, I want to tell you, Ash, we've been living here a few years now and we've really figured the earth out. We've got it nailed down. We've got it understood. We've had a good long look. We've made a few mistakes in our past, but now we've got it together. And you would listen to that and you would think, you've got no concept of what is going on. That is the kind of imagery that God uses here. God looks down at the earth, and he sees us as grasshoppers. Not to say that we don't count, but just to give us a sense of our scale. Grasshoppers, you don't see them, do you? You can hear them a bit, but you don't ever really see them. God says you need to get a sense of your wisdom. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. The smartest thing that we have ever done is like when God loses his car keys, if I'm not being too blasphemous. God, our best moments, our most amazing thing, our best thinking, our wisest moments don't even get near to God. Isaiah says to his people, you need to remember this picture. And there's a few reasons for it. I guess one of the reasons that would sort of captivate the people would be that this, God's plan God's purposes were that Jerusalem would be restored, that it would become a light on a hill again, and that the people would be able to see God and see him at work. And you have this brilliant bunch of people exiled in Babylon. And if they can't get back over there to build that city up, then the people stop hearing about God and how good he is. And that has to start, Isaiah shows us, with these people grasping just how great God is. You ever thought about what the start of our ministry looks like, what the start of our Christian faith looks like, what the start of us being effective in the world looks like, it starts often with us having a right sense of how great God is and how amazing God is. And how often, and I guess this is part of the challenge of this, of this text and this poetry, is that we see our immediate circumstances and our surroundings as being too big and forgetting just how big God is, something else, I guess, with it being Christmas time, this idea throughout, coming into my mind as I I read through this passage, this idea of looking out to the horizon with hope, this challenge that getting back to Jerusalem, which would seem impossible, is made possible by by God, and by what God can do in us, and I guess he has made an incredible way, and at Christmas time, we are incredibly encouraged, aren't we, we see God incarnate, Emmanuel, Christ with us. And we say, that's incredible. That's really good. And we celebrate that. Think about this. Celebrate that. It's great that God has come. God has dwelt amongst us. But what does it mean? What does it mean that he has dwelt amongst us? He's come once. It means he will come again. We celebrate Christmas time. We see the birth of a baby. We see God incarnate. And we celebrate. We think that's great. We have seen Christmas. God at work. Well, guys, we can, we can take that promise. He has come once. We can celebrate. He will come again. I guess at the heart of this beautiful passage, we have, we have this, this bunch of people who, who are made to realize again that God has the authority. They saw it. In the uniforms and the lifestyle of the Babylonians, and God says, "You need to you need to see that I have this authority." There's this great verse, and we only ever become familiar with the second part of it. The Second part of it is, "Go into the world and make disciples of all nations." It's our commission. It's one of the one of the big verses. If you're a Christian, this is what we've got to do: got to go into the world and make disciples of all nations. But there's a bit of the verse that we forget. And it'd be really good if we remembered it. The start of the verse says, because all, Jesus says this, his last words to the earth, because all authority under heaven has been given to me, therefore go into the world and make disciples of all nations. We need to remember that we don't go out in our own strength. We need to have this picture that we go out with authority, not because we're awesome, not because we've got it nailed down, but because we go out in God's Strength. When you walk across, when you focus on a God that's great, when you grasp the concept that God is great, walking across a desert seems like an easy thing to do. God in this passage doesn't dismiss that our problems are big. He's not saying, life's easy, get on with it. He's not saying, I'm looking down at your problems, I see that they're easy. He's saying to us, I see that your problems are big. Being in Babylon was a big problem. He's saying, I see that your problems are big, but I need you to know that I am bigger.